This is an official communication from the government of Sofistan. From the country that invented the Switch Side Visa. And where every restaurant's soup of the day is, convince me. You are listening to the Republic of Sofistan podcast. Citizens of the Republic around the world are committed to one common cause. Liberation. Liberating your mind and your voice from poor habits of underdeveloped rhetoric, debate, and argumentation. Got a comment for us? Email us at podcast at sofastand.com. I am the Minister of Education for the Republic of Sofistan, Dr. Steve Yano, and I invite you to join me to decolonize your mind and explore the practices of debate, rhetoric, and argumentation that will liberate your mind and voice and help you become a sophist. Anchor.fm slash Republic of Sophistan. once again and thanks for joining us for another episode from the embassy of republic of sofistan i am the education minister and i'm sorry about the lateness of this week's episode i've been out of town i attended the c-span center for scholarship and engagement at purdue university in the brian lamb school of communication i presented my research that i've been using uh, the c-span video library to conduct my research and you're going to hear my talk right after these opening remarks, I've decided to share it with you. I recorded it while I was there, and it'll follow these remarks uh, in this episode. Uh, A bunch of scholars got together and used the C-SPAN library to research things that they were interested in answering, research questions about how politicians communicate, how people communicate about politics, and all this was made possible by C-SPAN. Now, for those of you listening who don't know what C-SPAN is, C-SPAN was an organization founded in the mid-1980s, or actually the early 1980s is when it was founded. It didn't start uh, covering Congress until the mid-1980s, but it stands for Cable Satellite Public Affairs Network. What it is is a free uh, channel, a free television network that covers public affairs programming, any panel discussion at a major university about politics, any political speech anyone makes who is an elected official or ex-elected official, if it's relevant, Everything is covered. And then in 1984, I believe, they started to do gavel-to-gavel coverage of the Senate and the House. The Senate might have come later. I don't know all the history here, but in Sofistan, we think this is an amazing resource, an amazing thing that Americans and uh, I think almost everyone in the world has access to through the website at c-span.org. You can watch any um, debate on any issue. It's keyword searchable. It's an amazing database, and it's made possible by the uh, C-SPAN archive, which is there in uh, West Lafayette, Indiana, where I just was. So this conference was great. It made me reflect on a few things. First, it made me think about the question or the large debate happening in the United States about the reliance on experts. Experts, it seems, are under some kind of unique fire these days. In Sofistan, we find this to be really strange when we look at American culture. 
and about this idea that people don't listen to experts anymore. People should listen to experts in the way that's appropriate to listening to experts. That is, they should say and assume that maybe they've spent a little bit more time with the data or the information that they're using to make their arguments than they have. But being an expert does not absolve you from your responsibilities for ethical argumentation and appropriate rhetorical construction. That, is, that means just because you're an expert, you can't dismiss the preferences of the audience for things like attitude, decorum, propriety, things like that. You also can't just blatantly dismiss the audience's attention or connection to their own values, the processes that they think are important, the cultural norms that they follow. You can't just throw those things away, and why would you want to do that? In the United States and other places in the world, there's this cult of the fact. Adherence to facts is the things that are going to save us. In Sophistan, what Sophistanis believe is that what's going to save us is careful attention to the things that people think are factual, natural, normal, and the best. These are the anchor points by which you can take the things that you think will improve the discourse and thought and conversation of your fellow human beings and link those things to that. It's an easy way in to persuade. So in thinking about the C-SPAN video library, what an amazing resource to make yourself an expert on an issue. You have some of the top people who've looked at some of the type of information in the world on their issues, speaking, unedited, not edited by a journalist, not edited by some kind of for-profit uh, news program or news channel, talking about the thing that they know best. You can keyword search it and watch all of the different speeches on immigration. How would you like to be an expert based on information, not based on any kind of degree or anything? And this goes back to um, a kind of a uh, an, an interesting um, Marxist uh, concern or a Marxist idea that comes from uh, Antonio Gramsci. The idea that there are two different kinds of intellectuals in the world. There are institutional intellectuals who learn how to be intellectual and how to examine information and how to make judgments and how to make claims based on the norms of a field that they are taught through uh, spending a few years in an institution. Myself, I have a PhD. Uh, I'm an institutional intellectual. Then there's another kind of intellectual who's bottom up. They are autodidactic. They've taught themselves. They've looked at all the different kinds of information and they too can craft arguments. Now, in a given situation, most Americans, most people in Western democracies would say, well, the institutional intellectual is always going to win those debates. But it's not the case. And any sophistani will tell you that. Any sophist will tell you that. The person who pays the most attention to audience and the gap between your actual audience and the universal audience is the most important factor there. That gap will show you how to craft your arguments. Filling that gap, you have to attend to things that experts wouldn't care about. Things like passion, emotion, tradition, the stories of a community or a society. These are the things that really get connection made. The goal, again, for someone who's adhering to facts is the goal for them is, well, I want the truth out there. I want people to believe the truth. I don't want them to stop talking about it. In Sophistan, we want people to continue to talk about it, but we want people to be able to defend their positions better or to narrow the conversation to something more productive for the value of the debate. We want to enhance the rhetoric around the issue. And that's our goal. We don't want to stop it. We want to continue it, but continue it under certain conditions because we understand that silence about an issue in the light of the facts is no defense of the right position on that issue. 
In fact, it ruins your ability to defend that issue when it comes up and is challenged. And it will be challenged no matter what it is. Look to the anti-vaxxer debate. Look to the um, disregard for medical professionals' opinion. Look to the disregard for policy experts. Look to all kinds of different rhetorics that you find in the United States right now. Uh, the doubt of any kind of journalistic integrity almost completely evaporated. And people aren't used to defending these discourses. So they're a little flabby when they go to defend them and it causes some trouble. There's nothing in Sophistan that we feel should just be quietly accepted. It all has to be discussed. So my first comment on this conference is the C-SPAN video archive allows you to become your own expert. It allows you to access some of the best discourse in the world and form your own arguments and improve them better. I suggest checking it out. C-SPAN.org. The second thing. How narrow-minded are academics? I think everybody at that conference was brilliant. Every paper I heard was amazing. But we all cited ourselves. Now, I've been harsh and other people have been harsh in, in the field of rhetoric here in the United States, which I'm kind of an ambassador to. I'm about to attend the national convention of the NCA in Salt Lake City in a couple of weeks and present some more research uh, from the Sophistani point of view. But the issue here is one of um, inward-looking Academics, we tend to be inward looking. I heard some great papers. I heard a great paper about um, black Trump supporters. And it sounded like it could be a communication or rhetoric paper, but it cited mostly political science. And it had, uh, you know, some, some things I thought could have been made really amazing if that conversation would happen about that paper among communication scholars and political scientists. Likewise, a historian responded to my paper. And although I don't have the response recorded, the historian's response was amazing and really opened up a lot of ideas for my pursuit of a rubric that can help make political debates valuable again. Electoral debates, specifically for Senate and Congress, make them valuable for increasing the quality of political discourse in the United States again, which is the thesis of the paper you're about to hear. So the C-SPAN conference is a really important conference because it's located not around a discipline, but a data set. Now, how rare is that? I, I don't know of any other conference, academic or otherwise, that is simply created around a data set. At the airport, I took the airport shuttle back. I met a woman in the shuttle who um, wanted some help finding her airline gate. And although I don't know the Indianapolis airport at all, I said, sure, follow me. I'm going to go to the ticket counter, so I'll be able to find it. Maybe I can help you find it, too. And we, we chatted, and she was a cardiologist, and she's going to a conference in San Diego on cardiology, a set of practices, beliefs, norms, and scientific truths and facts arranges that conference. You wouldn't just have a conference anyone from any discipline could attend about heart data. Maybe we should. What about a conference about something like, I don't know, any data set you have about um, speeches about immigration or arguments about immigration? Literally anyone could attend that conference from any discipline and have something to say or get something out of it. I feel that arranging conferences around practices that a discipline holds dear is a surefire way to, to make sure that academic discourse never hits good targets. We're talking to ourselves and we're talking to ourselves in a way that makes us feel good because it's for judgment. We can judge a paper and say, oh, they didn't really use Burke right or they didn't use that method right or Oh, you know, their standard deviations off or that P score is bad or 
they didn't take into account these other variables that would have made a better paper. If I had written that paper with my knowledge of method, it would have been better. Now, how does that do anything except help you feel better? It's like watching sports. You're not getting any exercise, but you feel great. You feel like you've accomplished something when you watch your favorite team win. We don't need that in academia. It sure is fun when you watch sports. Don't get me wrong. That's that's great. But um, it shouldn't be in academia. It shouldn't be in our research. Why don't we have more conferences around a set of data or a set of discourse or a set of utterances? That would be really cool. I got to think about this a lot more in terms of conference planning for things that the embassy here in New York might want to sponsor for future conferences. And if you're going to be in Salt Lake City, give us a visit. Come find me. Happy to talk to you about Silphistan and help you if you're considering immigration or if you'd like a visa, help you out with that. The third thing, publication. Peer, why is peer review connected to academic journals behind paywalls? Now, I know I'm not the first person to ask this question, nor am I the first person to even suggest that something should be done about it. It's happening now. We have open access, open depository, open access journals and stuff, but why is the textual journal form the only thing we connect to peer review? Why don't we have podcast peer review? Podcaster would be a wonderful way to present the research that we heard at the C-SPAN uh, Center for Scholarship and Engagement Conference last weekend in, in uh, West Lafayette. A podcast would be a wonderful way to share the research of those young, promising scholars, all their amazing ideas from everything from uh, equivocation and tweets to global warming. It was an amazing crew of people, lots of great thoughts, lots of great research, and lots of things to think about. Wouldn't it be cool if you could hear everything from the conference? Maybe I should have recorded it all and podcasted it myself. I have diplomatic immunity, but um, it's arguable whether or not that's a good use of it. We'd have to have that debate here with the embassy staff, and uh, I would just be assigned a side. So it doesn't really matter what I personally think. You know, Sophistani uh, culture being what it is. However, peer review for podcasts is something I'm working on a bit myself. As an editor of a journal that's coming back from uh, supposed um, death, Timely Interventions, a journal where the uh, editor-in-chief is John Reef, we have talked a little bit about podcasts, and I've been trying to think of, since that conversation in May, what a peer review for a podcast looks like. And I think I found a model. In the 1930s, there was a council on radio education that was put together by people from within the radio industry, the media industry, and other people who had a stake in education. They had people in it from the Columbia Broadcasting Network, the National Broadcasting Network, psychologists, education professionals. Ralph Ellison was even on it as someone who was a representative of culture, race, um, perspectives of literature and things like that. And they were trying to decide the same thing. How do we know that we've aired a show that's educational? What's the best way to know that we've put educational radio on the air? We can't just feel like we have. That's not good enough. We can't just say, well, I feel like it was education. Or I feel like that was educational. I feel like that, that got to people. You can't do that. That's not good enough. So I think looking at those transcripts of the National Council of Educational Radio, I, I'm get, I think I'm getting the name right. Finding that archive, looking at those transcripts, we'll find a way to increase publication because from where I'm sitting, the academics 
that I heard papers from at this conference at Purdue University are well poised to inform national debate in the United States about Congress, about debate in the, on the House floor and the Senate floor, about election ideology, about how we talk about these things, about how we discuss global warming. They're well poised to get this out there. And it's not that people are too stupid to understand academic discourse. They're not. You can cut through all the boring sort of the parts that are our culture and get to the real meat of it. It's funny, but in Sovastan, we think of all those particular things about each discipline, those particular norms from discipline to discipline as the same thing as cultural assumptions you'd have of a group of people about what their traditions are and the stories that they share that help them frame their world. It's the same thing for academics. A um, distribution on a curve is aesthetically beautiful. A standard deviation number can be beautiful. Data can be beautiful. But when we say it like that, we feel like we're chipping away at the primacy of facts. And when that happens, I say, good job, keep going. There should be no primacy of any discourse except the one that is persuasive for the audience you're trying to move. That's where we would put primacy in Sophistan, um, arguably, arguably. Well, that's enough reflection from me about the conference. I think you might like to hear my paper now. And as always, if you have comments about it, you can email us at podcast at sophistan.com. Or if you go to anchor.fm slash Republic of Sophistan, you can leave us an audio comment. We would love to get audio comments from you. We'll play them on the air in a future episode. Here is the paper that I gave at the C-SPAN Center for uh, Scholarship and Engagement in the Brian Lamb School of Communication at Purdue University uh, just this past uh, Monday. I think it was Monday. Yeah, just this past Monday, I gave this speech on the campus uh, where I presented my ideas about congressional debating. Here it is. Morning, everybody. Thanks for coming. Thanks to Robert for putting this thing together. Um, my name is Steve Yano. I'm from St. John's University in New York City. And I want to tell you a little story to kind of start things off for my presentation. It's the story of New York Congressional District 14, where their primary election made national headlines because of a primary race. Now, being a member, uh, being a citizen of New York City, I'm well aware that uh, all of our elections are decided in the Democratic primary. The actual election day doesn't matter. Uh, the Democratic primary is where you vote if you want to decide who's going to uh, win. So in this district, we had long-term Congressman Joe Crowley, who was seen as next in line for Speaker of the House. Nancy Pelosi was challenged by someone who ran on an openly socialist platform. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Cortez handily defeated her in the primary and will probably win election to the Congress. They didn't have a debate. They talked about having a debate, but as you know, only only people obligated in American politics to debate are presidents. And it's questionable whether they're obligated to debate. Only recently we've kind of worked that out. So the debate wasn't necessary. The voters tended to decide just fine. But someone else noticed there wasn't a debate and decided that there should be one. Ben Shapiro. Ben Shapiro on his television show challenged Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez to a debate uh, where he said they can talk about the issues and offered her $10,000 to her campaign if she would come on the show and uh, debate uh, with her, uh, with him. Uh, his model of debate is interesting. I would love to debate her because I have one question for her, he said. Name an industry you would not nationalize. Which ones could the government not run and why? All right, can she name any of them? 
kind of insulting for an invitation, and Ocasio-Cortez's campaign took it directly like that. She tweeted, just like catcalling, I don't owe a response to unsolicited requests from men with bad intentions. So I guess that's a no. This is an interesting case study for me as someone who's a scholar of rhetoric and debate because it opens up the question, what do we think? It's like a shadow box or like a model of what do we think debates do? How do debates function in society? Here we see debates as either expose or something that's really kind of a bad thing that might have bad stuff inside it. In fact, the model most people have for political debates is this. It's a Trojan horse, a gift that you have to accept in wartime that might be full of enemies just waiting to catch you sleeping. This model of debate is echoed by scholars who can't seem to make up their mind about what political or election debates are about. Here's a smattering of different scholarship about election debates. They're joint press conferences, the famous attribution of Sidney Krauss, who has written the most about electoral debates of any scholar. Um, uh, Catherine Hall Jameson and David Birdsell say, it's sustained consideration of important issues is best difficult when topics shift rapidly, the emphases are determined by non-contestants, and the time is short. And finally, George Farah indicates that debate contests have shifted away from fundamental issues to narrow issues, mostly because of the control of the presidential debates by uh, the uh, Commission on Presidential Debates, a bipartisan neutral organization full of all the senators and representatives who lost their elections. Um, and also like attorneys to old presidents and stuff like that. It's a strange organization, but this is our model for election debates, and it seems odd that this is it. Here's an example of the kind of restrictions that we think are normal and okay for debates. This is from the recent Texas Senate debates from uh, Ted Cruz and Vito O'Rourke, where these were the rules for the debate. A question of 90 seconds to answer, 60 seconds for response, and 30 seconds for rebuttal. And I think 15 minutes up here is hard. I'm not even running for anything. My position's secured. I don't have to beat anybody. But this is what we expect as normal. Why do we think of this as normal, and why do we think of debates as operating in this way? Well, part of our cultural baggage for this needs to be removed. We think of debates as zero-sum games that have winners and losers, that are full of trickery but are necessary, that have uh, purity concerns, and that are so incredibly important that in 1988, the Merkel Commission, something Sidney Krauss points out, suggested that campaign finance accessibility should be tied to willingness to debate. That is, you won't get campaign finance money unless you debate. This never became policy, but it was suggested in 1988. And I wonder what the conditions were, I guess, in the Dukakis-Bush uh, campaigns that made them feel like this might be a necessity. Maybe we could think about debates differently. Maybe if we thought about debates as being an older form of rhetorical discourse, not a deliberative form meant to solve a problem, but one where we celebrate values, something that connects the best man's toast at a wedding to the Athenian funeral panegyric, epideictic rhetoric, the rhetoric where we consolidate our values and say who we are and what we stand for. I think if we think of electoral debates this way, we have a much, much easier time or clearer time of evaluating them and making them a productive part of our American election system. This book is, uh, it's hard to understate this book, but since I have 15 minutes, I'm going to do a really good job of it. Uh, this book is an amazing, amazing book that gets overlooked by most scholars. And this is uh, Kyle Perlman and uh, Lucy Ulbricht-Stitica's understanding of the epideictic. What the, to, to, I'm going to show you a lot of walls of text for the rest of the presentation. I hope you're excited about that. Um, what uh, we want to pull from this about the epideictic is that these values are normally not contested in our daily lives. We think of them as identity. We think of them as who we are. And what the epideictic rhetor does is bring them forward because at any moment, 
there's a number of different values one could have and a number of different ways one could identify as an American, as someone from West Lafayette, as someone from Indiana, as someone from New York, as someone who has Italian background or Spanish background. What the epideictic rhetoric does, rhetoric does is take that field of possibility and bring forward the ones to say, right here, right now, this is who we are. This is what we stand for. This is what matters. And that is the thing that happens in these electoral debates. They're not discussing policy. They're not discussing facts or who's right or wrong. They're saying, I can stand in for local values at the national level. I can represent both your national feelings and support the local. And that's what they're doing. This book has a lot more to say about epideictic rhetoric, but we must move on. Epideictic rhetoric is um, operationalized in what they call dissociative argument, which is the theory that whenever there are incompatibilities in my opponent, I say it's not that they're uh, wrong, that's distasteful. I say, well, they're just not really who you think they are. And they talk about this in terms of the basic appearance reality pair, which is an incredibly basic move in argumentation where you say, my opponent appears to be in favor of families, but in reality, let's look to the record. I appear to be a, just a simple businessman, but let me tell you a little bit more about my family life, what I support and what I value. This is the paradigmatic structure of argumentation that Perlman and Ulbricht Stateka discover in their vast inductive study that goes across law, literature, science, you name it. They have examples of it in this book. The appearance reality pair is something that electoral debaters in congressional debates very specifically, and there was a great example uh, last night. I can't remember what I was watching. I was watching something on C-SPAN last night. It must have been. It must have been. There was a great example of this where it was the congressman couldn't remember the name of the or kept calling her Nancy Pelosi. Was that Florida? Is it a congressional debate? I'm going to put it into the paper because it's fantastic. But it's like, here's somebody who can't even remember my name and you expect them to represent us in Congress. Excellent example of dissociative argument. You think they're smart. They're actually really just a player. They're actually really just a trickster. And those things are always concerns that we have when we're facing debate. So if epideictic argument is the way I think we should look at these debates, how do we understand what happens? How do we understand the persuasive effect of them? Well, we turn to this scholar, Kenneth Burke, whose work uh, is very much like one of these people who believes, I don't understand these people, who believe that they have a theory that could practically explain the totality of human motivation. There's very few people at this level, Marx, Freud, Burke, who think that they have a theory that explains all of human motivation. He calls his dramatism. And dramatism is the idea that theater doesn't mirror life, life mirrors theater. Literature is equipment for living. We look to the theater, we look to our uh, dramas, we look to stories to show us how we should act in the face of particular motivation. Two ideas here I want you to think about when we look at these clips. Identification division, which is one movement for Burke, and consubstantiality. Identification and division is the idea that we pretend to be, or we hope to be, a certain way, and we think we are that way, but we're merely moving towards that way as a continuous movement. We're always trying to identify with the institutions, ideas, and people who we admire and respect. At the same time, we are dividing from other identities. This is a double movement that we can't avoid. Uh, consubstantiality is the idea that I'm always trying to be like the people I want to be like. So this quote over here, you give the signs of such consubstantiality by deference to an audience's opinions, is what it should say under there. It got cut off, I think. I think it's because I don't have a Mac. But um, uh, the idea is that all of these things are positive. So when a candidate says, we believe in families first, or we believe in a balanced budget, they're positing that as existent before them, but they rhetorically craft that. They're bringing that forward epideictically and saying, here's what we believe. So 
With this in mind, I've created my own sort of system for trying to figure out how to look at um, these debates. Here are some of the postulates that I came up with that we're going to look at some video here uh, to determine how they go. First, congressional election debates are about creating identification and consubstantiality within audiences. An audience is one thing for sure. It's eligible voters, possibly. There might be people there who can't vote, who just come for the show. But we can assume that pretty safely. But after that, it's up to candidates to decide what they're going to construct that audience to be and who that audience is going to be. They're about values, not facts. This is very confusing because we all like to go to politicalfactcheck.org or whatever. These organizations also pointed out that the $10,000 campaign contribution that Ben Shapiro was offering to Ocasio-Cortez would violate federal finance law. So it couldn't happen even if they agreed to it in the first place. But um, these fact-checking sites, we go to these and we think that that's going to resolve it for us. But I would submit to you that facts are used as value points. Like when Ted Cruz challenges Beto O'Rourke in the first debate and says, the Washington Post determined that you were a liar. It shows that he's uh, uh, associating himself not so much with the truth, but so much so with the value of what the audience would think about the Washington Post and what the audience would think about somebody who says they didn't say something when it's a matter of public record. So facts play as values. Uh, They're about the ability of the candidate to speak from the center of both local and national values. This is incredibly crucial in the age of Trump. We're going to see an example from the 2016 election, and then we're going to look at the special election, Pennsylvania's 18 district, which was uh, after Congressman Tim Murphy had to resign. Uh, there was a special election, and we'll see how that discourse changes a little bit there about how they have to deal with the local and national conflicting. And they're meant to create more discourse to unsettle, not to settle. I want you to think about debates as kicking up a number of different things. They're meant to produce discourse amongst voters and people, not to say, oh, that's the policy, let's stop talking. That would be the worst thing in a campaign. You want people talking about your candidate. You want people talking about what they did and what they said and what they acted on. Uh, sometimes it just doesn't go your way if the candidate maybe goes off the rails. But you do want people talking. You don't want to settle issues. You want to create them. It's the opposite of the way we're taught all of our lives to think about the function of debate. So let's look at um, how we're going to evaluate these things. I came up with four terms that I think you can identify most discourse with. Framework. The first term is about what exists, what's out there, what's the exposition of the scene according to the candidate. Principle is, what are, the, what are the values I hold to? What are my values? What do I hold? What do I believe? Vision is, how am I going to enact those values when I get elected or reelected? What am I going to? And action is, here are the actions I've taken in the past, or here are the things that I'm doing that show you that my principle and action are actually in the correct ratio, and I can't accomplish this. So these are my four terms. I just kind of came up with them. I came up with them because I write a lot on this blog called Election Debates during the campaign debates, and I write. Uh, and it helps me write reviews of these debates that I think are helpful. Instead of telling people who won or lost, which is the way journalists always are at these things, like, who won the debate, professor? I'm like, well, it's hard to say. They're not really structured the way we think. And they're like, that's very nice, professor, but who won the debate? <laughs> so this is why I don't really talk to journalists that much anymore. Um, about this kind of stuff because I feel like I'm just doing a disservice to American politics, quite honestly. Um, when I say, well, you know, I've studied debate for 20 years and da, da, you know, it doesn't help anybody. So let's get into some of the action. Example one is from Minnesota's third congressional district 2016 debate. This is a district outside of Minneapolis that seems to be pretty affluent. Um, I don't know if anybody from this area, but the debate was between Eric Paulson, who's the, um, the guy running for re-election, and Terry Bonoff, who's a state uh, representative. And I have a clip here of Terry Bonoff's 
opening statement to kind of show you how I do this analysis and what we can say about it. And so let's, uh, let's see if we can watch that. I hope this works. Sorry, it didn't work right. That's an interesting point I make in the paper is how the journalists deflect and deny that there's actually a debate happening. <laughs> we don't have a debate here, we talk. We hang out, we're cool. We hang out with each other, we're cool. Uh, there's a lot of debate divestment that happens in our culture. Uh, we are really, really torn in this paradox where we think debate is an essential part of American political life. And then at the same time, we are paranoid about the Trojan horse model. We're like, this is going to be bad. There's going to be a lot of blood. People are going to get hurt. This is gonna be so we, we have this huge paradox. And we try to resolve it by saying, well, we have to have this debate, but we're going to do it differently. It's sort of like if you're like, well, we're going to have a dinner party, but it's not going to be formal. And that's kind of the way the discourse handles it. And I think every single journalist in every single debate makes this move. No one says, we're here for a debate and we're just really going to rip each other apart. No one does that. But that's the fear that operates in their mind. It's really kind of funny. Well, for coming in. Uh, Senator Bonham, let's start with the opening statement. Well, thank you. I'm running for Congress because I believe in the promise of our country and its people. I think it is more important now than ever before that we elect courageous leaders, leaders who can bring people together on both sides of the aisle together to tackle our very real tough challenges. In the Minnesota Senate, I've earned a reputation for doing just that. As a pro-business Democrat, I worked with the Minnesota Chamber to create the Minnesota Pipeline Project. That program was really about getting rid of student debt and addressing the skills gap. It connected students with employers, they get on-the-job training, they get paid wages while they're getting the degree. When they're done, they actually have a job. That work has been written about twice in the last year by Forbes magazine. It's that kind of bold leadership that I would bring with me to Congress, where it is sorely lacking. You know, Congressman Paulson, you've been there for eight years, and I think you've enabled part of that uh, gridlock and that obstructionist Congress. And I also believe that you have voted uh, too often uh, on the wrong side of history with the extreme part of the right wing part of your party. And so I believe that I have the values and the vision to represent this district. I was proud to be endorsed by ECM publishers, and they're the, the group that all has all of the local community newspapers. And what they said when they endorsed me is that I represented in my candidacy real hope and change. And so I have been a courageous leader in the uh, business world, in the Minnesota Senate, and I would be that in Washington. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, let's, uh, in the interest of time here, we'll maybe just go to, to um, Paulson next. Um, let's look at a couple of things she said. I'm running for Congress because I believe in the promise of this country and its people. That's a principal statement. That work has been written about twice in the last year by Forbes magazine, talking about her jobs program. That's action. And it's that kind of bold leadership that I will bring to Congress where it's solely lacking vision. What's missing here from Bonoff's opening statement is framework, and Paulson is very eager to supply it. This one's going to work, hopefully. 
Senator Baldwin. Thank you, and Leah, thanks for hosting uh, the debate uh, tonight with KSTP. Um, I'm running for Congress uh, once again. Now's the time when Minnesota expects its elected leaders more than at any other time to work across the aisle bipartisanly. Uh, transcend uh, partisan politics. And I've got a great track record of doing that. I'm going to continue to do that, uh, whether it's repealing the medical device tax, which is focusing on keeping high-paying jobs right here in the state, um, uh, high-paying jobs that are so critical uh, in all of Minnesota. I worked on that with Senator Klobuchar, and that was persistent. It took five years to get that across the finish line to suspend that tax. So sometimes it can take a while. Or sometimes there may be an issue that moves quicker, such as stopping anti-human trafficking or sex trafficking. Uh, also a very bipartisan issue, where we were able to get that done in less than a year. It's literally saving lives. Um, and recently I passed a missing children bill uh, that will help now find missing children and now help put sex offenders behind bars. And so we're at a time now with partisan gridlock, with partisan politics. I want to continue to be part of a constructive solution to move the ball forward. It's one of the reasons why I was endorsed by the Minneapolis Star Tribune recently, why I'm endorsed by uh, the business organizations such as NFIB or Twin West Chamber, for instance. And uh, I'm going to continue to work along that mold. I'm one of only 34 members this year that's had a bill signed off from either party, of either body, by the president. And I think that's what Minnesotans expect, is that type of leadership. I'm going to continue to do that if I'm elected again next week. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. So let's look quickly uh, at his statement. The first thing is he sets up the framework, which is here we are in Minnesota and here's what Minnesotans expect. He puts that as a positive thing. This isn't argumentative. This is what exists. Now, of course, it is argumentative. All of us can see that we could disagree with that. But the way that you put it forward in the debate is this exists. And then he says, I've got a great track record of doing that. I'm going to continue to do this working together. So I'm going to, I've done this already. I'm going to continue to do it. That's my vision. And I've worked with a Democratic Senator, Amy Klobuchar, on the Senate to make these job bills happen, which shows the kind of action he does. If we compare this across between both of them, her principal needs framework for that. And so this is something you could say about this debate to say, look at what's happening here. Look at how to improve that uh, congressional uh, argumentation. Or let's look at how we can compare these people together. Is that without a framework, uh, if she's talking mostly about herself, without a framework in, uh, uh, statement or framework argument, then there's uh, very little that you can do to compare. So I have a number of other examples. I know I'm a little over time. But I did want to close to say I think this framework is very useful for helping people, especially scholars, talk to students and others about the value of these political debates because they don't function the way most people assume they're going to function. And using the four terms to help make sense of them and find comparative arguments with them is incredibly useful. Uh, this is a really important time to generate this kind of discourse because the American political debate model is being exported as quickly as possible. Uh, the British leaders debate in a presidential style. The Canadian leaders are about to start doing it. We had the debate uh, between um, Nigel Farage and uh, Nick Clegg on the Brexit, on the UK Brexit, which was done in this presidential style. So thinking of these as policy-solving discursive moments is just to, to upend or to ruin the ability of these to, things to be a valuable part of American political discourse. So I think I'll leave it there. I have a number of other examples if you want to talk to me later in the conference. I'm happy to show you more video than you'd like to see and talk about my ideas very much. But uh, thank you so much for your sustained attention and thanks for having me at the conference. Thank you.
A special announcement for all friends of the Republic of Sofistan, expats, and people interested in learning about how to immigrate to Sofistan. The Minister of Education will be live in person in Salt Lake City, Utah, November 8th through 11th at the National Communication Association's conference, Communication at Play. This conference is going to be held in Salt Lake City downtown, and in the evenings, we'll be doing live shows and interviews from the conference for this podcast. The Hilton Salt Lake City at 255 Southwest Temple in Salt Lake City is probably going to be the place where we will meet and do the show. But it also could be at any number of these other hotels in that area. We will post on our website at sofastand.com where we are and where we're doing the show that night and how you can be involved. There's nothing like being part of the Republic of Sofistan podcast live. This has been the Republic of Sofistan podcast. If you like it, please consider subscribing on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Radio Public, or Anchor.fm slash Republic of Sofistan. Republic of Sofistan is a production of International Debate Research Associates, LLC, in New York. All content is solely and totally the responsibility of International Debate Research Associates. Thank you for listening. See you next week.